Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
Hello, saints. If you'll uh, turn in your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 2 and stand for the reading of God's Word. Beginning at verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him.
next Sunday on the calendar is Christmas Eve. So you're probably wondering, uh, gee, Jim, are you going to bring us a Christmas message next week? Well, one never knows. Uh, you'll just have to show up here and find out. It's a possibility. The week after that, Sunday falls on New Year's Eve, and it has been our tradition here at GCA that on the last Sunday of the year or the first Sunday of a new year, I take the morning essentially off, and you all get to talk. And we talk about what God has done for us in the past year. It's a great opportunity to look back over the last year. I know this year has held some difficulties and hardships for some of us, and yet here we are. This year has held some tremendous blessings. This is the year that Christian and Isabella got married. So they have a lot to thank God for. And so it's good, I think, for us collectively as a body to just pause and look back over the year and be able to see the faithfulness of God through the highlights, through the difficulties, through the hardships. God once again has gotten us through another year, and here we still are. And I know when we've done this in the past, I've heard uh, kind of universally from everybody how much they enjoyed it, because in the process, you all get to know each other even better. So be prepared two weeks from today, be prepared to talk about how good God has been to you. Be prepared to talk about the hardships you've been through and the blessings you've been through. It's not going to go on the internet. It's just family talk. It's just going to be us on the 31st of December. All right? Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I hope if you came away with nothing else last week that you recognize that Paul drew a parallel between the parousia, the appearance of Christ, and the departure. The word is sadly translated apostasy in the NASB. It is apostasia in the Greek. It is the departure. And then the removal of the restrainer. Those things all occur and then the man of sin is revealed, and then the day of the Lord occurs. And that parallel between the parousia, the departure, and the removal is a parallel that I just don't think we can ignore. It's right there in the text. And so I think if we're reading it contextually, then we have to conclude that what Paul is saying is that Christ is going to appear in the sky. We are going to be gathered together to meet him, to meet the Lord in the air. He will appear in the clouds. We will be gathered to the clouds. That is the departure, and that is the removal of the restraining force that holds back this man of sin. Now that I have reminded you of that, let's start reading at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasia comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself As being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will restrain until he is taken out of the way. And then... That lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. We covered all of that last week, but there were a couple of little details that I didn't really get a chance to dig into. So I just want to mention those. And then the purpose of this morning is to show you that nothing that Paul is saying here is unique to the New Testament. It's not unique to Pauline theology. Paul is just continuing to lay out the order of events and the particular events that the prophets in the Old Testament have already predicted. And then we're going to see yet again the absolute, unmitigated, unbelievable sovereignty of God at work. So that's the plan for this morning. If you leave here remembering nothing else, just remember that you're in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God. I used to teach out of the King James. I talked about that last week. The King James is the only translation of all of the modern translations. It is the only one that decided to translate in verse 2. The day of the Lord as, does anybody have a King James Version with them? Right there. Does it say the day of Christ? It's kind of an unbelievable translation that the King James says in verse 2, don't lose your composure or be disturbed by a spirit or a message to the effect that the day of Christ has come. And that has led to a tremendous amount of confusion because what would the day of Christ actually be? And so some folks say, well, the day of Christ is the parousia, the return of Christ, to gather his church into the clouds of the air 
So therefore, that cannot happen until after the man of sin has been revealed and after there has been an apostasy. We're going to talk about the apostasy in a moment. The Greek word there is actually kurios, which throughout the rest of the New Testament is translated Lord. A literal translation is day of the Lord. But I guess the translators of the King James, now I'm guessing what people thought like 500 years ago, but I'm guessing that they thought, well, kurios, that's the Lord, and Christ is the Lord, so therefore, day of Christ. So you can understand why some people would say that the church is going to endure the time of the Antichrist, and that the church is going to endure the trouble, the tribulation, and that we're not going to be removed until after all of that time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. Except the proper translation, again, of kurios is Lord. And the Old Testament is replete with descriptions of the day of the Lord. We don't feel it as much, being 21st century Gentiles, but... Any Hebrew who knew his scripture at all would know that the worst time that's ever going to come on the planet is when God pours out his wrath, and that particular event is called the day of the Lord. It is consistently called that, and prophet after prophet describes the terror of the day of the Lord, a day of darkness and a day of judgment. So Paul simply took that phraseology, the day of the Lord, transferred it into Greek, And then as it was translated into English, rather inexplicably, the King James translators went with the day of Christ. But if you read the literal Greek rendering, what Paul said was that there has to be certain events that occur before the day of the Lord. And before the day of God's judgment and God's wrath, there is a period of time where the Antichrist, the little horn, this final world ruler, dominates the political and religious world. That has to happen before the final judgment of God. And before that Antichrist can be revealed, there is the departure and the removal. Paul twice says that there has to be a departure, a removal before that man of sin can be revealed. Now, the word apostasia, which we talked a lot about last week, the translation of apostasy has also led to a tremendous amount of confusion. Let's think for just a moment, collectively, let's just think what Paul could be saying if the word apostasia actually meant apostasy, that very modern English concept of people departing from God, leaving the Christian faith, that is what apostasy is, Paul said that before the man of sin can be revealed, the apostasy would have to happen. What does that look like? What is the apostasy, that particular apostasy that is going to be so big, so obvious, so dramatic, that it can be used as a sign of the coming of Christ. When you see 
this apostasy, then you know that the man of sin is going to be revealed after that apostasy, and then the day of the Lord, and then the kingdom. It's all happening once you see the apostasy. Except that, ever since there's been a church, there's been nonstop people leaving the faith. Now, we, as sovereign grace believers who follow the word of God, we understand that those who God has chosen before the foundation of the world, those people he has put his Holy Spirit inside, Paul calls that the sealing of the Holy Spirit, sealing us for our eternity and salvation through Jesus Christ. And so we know that we who have the seal of the Holy Spirit, we're not going to apostatize or apostatize or however you'd like to say that word. We're not going to walk away from the faith, which is why one of the cardinal doctrines of the church is the idea of the perseverance of the saints. Why are we going to persevere in the faith? Because it is God and his almighty power that is preserving us. He's the one who chose us. He's the one who paid the price to redeem us. He's the one who sealed us with his own Holy Spirit. If he then were to lose you, that would be tantamount to saying God changed his mind. I mean, he, he wrote Shane's name down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. and He sent his son to die for all Shane's sins. And he put his own Holy Spirit in Shane, sealing Shane for time and eternity. But then Shane got all (laughs) Shaney. And Shane became the sinner that Shane is. And do you think God just didn't know that Shane was going to be like that? Do you think God was shocked and went, oh, no, I chose him. I paid for him. I sealed him. I determined. Gabriel, get me an eraser. I've got to get his name out of the Lamb's Book of Life. No, of course not. No, people who God has chosen and paid for and sealed, those people are going to persevere in the faith. So what does this apostasy look like? It's not going to be those who God has chosen. They're not going to leave the faith. Ever since there's been a church, John tells us, that there are people who have left the church. His conclusion is they went out from us because they were never of us. If they were of us, they would surely have stayed with us, but they went out from us to make manifest that they were never of us. Okay, so that kind of apostasy has been happening since John was writing. And that's part of the history of 2,000 years of the church. What does the apostasy look like? I read a commentator this week who said that really this is all about the Jewish apostasy. This is about the Jews abandoning God, breaking his law, following after the Antichrist. And that's what the apostasy is. It's a Jewish apostasy. The problem with it, as I was reading it, is the Antichrist they are supposedly following, the Antichrist who caused this apostasy, isn't revealed until after the apostasy happens. So that doesn't work. So are you talking about nominal Christianity? 
Are you talking about people who claim that they are Christian for whatever benefit they can get out of it? A new car, or a new house, or better health, or my children run faster and jump higher because we're Christians. These showbiz churches, people flock to them for the entertainment value. And then eventually people leave them and go find someplace else to go so they can get more out of their entertainment dollar. Is that the apostasy? They weren't really committed to Christ. They weren't really following after God because of the glory and the splendor and the honor that is necessarily due to God. They were just going to church because it was something you do because we live in the South. And in the South, you go to our church. (laughs) Well, if they leave, is that the apostasy? Well, it's been happening for a long, long time. So my question again is, If what Paul had meant was there's going to be an apostasy of the faith, a falling away from the faith, and that it is going to be so significant that it can be used as a sign, as a designation of the beginning of the eschatology that the Bible describes so that we know that the next thing that's going to happen after we see that magnificent an apostasy, the next thing we're going to see is the man of sin come on to the course of history, onto the world stage. What is that apostasy? It's not going to be us. And so it can be some nominal Christians, but are we going to notice that and say, that's a sign? Well, no. All I'm trying to prove is that the translation apostasy, which is really a transliteration of the Greek word apostasia, just doesn't even logically fit the context, or work. This is why I spent so much time last week telling you that the Greek word means departure. Who is being departed from, or who is doing the departing, or where they're departing to is all determined by the context. And the context is the coming, the parousia of Jesus Christ, and our gathering together to him to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we ever be with the Lord. That's the context. So don't be expecting some grand apostasy that you can point at and say, there, there's that sign that I've been looking for. I know what's coming next. That's not what Paul wrote. What he wrote was, before the man of sin can be revealed, there's going to be a departure. And then he said that the restraining force that is holding him back has to be removed. And that removal and that departure is in the context of the parousia of Christ. Have I beaten that to death now? I was hoping to. So then... This description of the man of lawlessness is really chilling, but again, it's not anything new if you know your Old Testament prophets. He's described as the man of lawlessness. He's a son of perdition or a son of destruction. And he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Both Isaiah and Ezekiel 
talk about Satan himself and his desire since he was the crowning cherub in heaven, since he was the chief musician in heaven. They both talk about the fact that he fell because of his pride, because of his beauty, because he said, I will place my own throne in the place of the north and I will be worshipped like God. That has always been the desire, the goal of Satan himself. So you can understand why Paul would say that this final world ruler who is driven by this satanic spirit is going to desire to place himself above every so-called God, not just Yahweh, the God of heaven, the maker of heaven and earth, but everything that everybody ever worshipped and called their God, he's going to place himself over it, every object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God placed his own name, the central location of the worship of Yahweh, he is going to set his own object of worship, his own throne, his own seat is going to be in the temple, proving to himself, since he's able to do that, since he's able to construct his own throne and inspire his own worship, he's going to prove to himself that he's bigger than the God of the temple that he's bigger than Yahweh himself. And he's going to take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And then, of course, Paul says, don't you remember when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what's restraining him right now, so that in his time he may be revealed, because God is a God of set times, And even the moment of the revelation of this final world ruler is according to God's own calendar. But when that time comes where he's going to be revealed, that restraining force needs to be taken away. Because, says verse 7, that mystery of lawlessness, that lawless attitude, he's referred to as the lawless one, but that attitude of lawlessness is pervasive in the world right now. The prince of the power of the air is mighty, mighty active. And we look at the world right now as chaotic as it seems and is. And we look at it sometimes and think, how can this be what's going on in the world? Well, the answer is lawlessness is already running rampant. And Paul calls it the mystery of lawlessness. I mean, here you have a planet, a universe that was designed by an absolutely holy God. An absolutely holy, righteous, almighty God, and yet rebellion against him broke out. And Paul calls that a mystery. How does that happen? And now it's pervasive on planet Earth. That lawlessness is already at work, except that he who is now restraining that lawless one is going to do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed. Notice how often Paul uses lawless, lawlessness, 
the son of lawlessness, the mystery of lawlessness, that lawless one. He is going to be in opposition to everything that is proper, righteous, holy, and according to the law of God. He is going to be incessantly breaking and rebelling against the laws of righteousness and holiness. And that lawless one is going to be revealed. But then what's going to become of him? When the Lord comes back, he will slay him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to an end by the appearance of his coming. That word is the epiphania of his coming. What word do you know, English word, do you know from the Greek word epiphania? Epiphany. Epiphany. By the very coming of Christ, by the radiance, by the glory of Christ, by his conspicuous, noticeable appearance. Well, that fits perfectly with what Jesus has already told us in Matthew 24, where the sun and the moon and the stars are all going to go out. They're going to go dark. And against that backdrop of a completely dark heaven, The sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the heavens so bright, so noticeable, so unignorable, if that's a word. If it's not, I just made it up. Use it later in a sentence. It's going to be so apparent to everybody on the planet that Jesus says it's going to be like the lightning that shines from the east to the west where everybody sees it. The sign of the return of the Son of Man, the epiphania, the epiphany of Christ himself in his magnificence coming back to the planet, and he's going to destroy him with the breath of his mouth. I find that phrase really interesting, the breath of his mouth, because in the book of Revelation, John sees him as returning with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. There's a lot of Mouth language where Jesus and his judgment is concerned. It's apparently his words, his language. After all, he is the very one who is the speaking agency of God. He's the one who said, let there be light. And by golly, there was light. He's the one who spoke everything into existence. He's the one who's going to speak judgment against all those who were judged at his great white throne judgment. He's the one who is going to mop up the floor with the son of lawlessness with just his words, with the breath of his mouth. He can make, he can create, and he can destroy. That's a mighty, sovereign-sounding Christ. Now, that entire description that I just reviewed for you, as I said, is not... New. It's not anything that Paul is suddenly revealing as if it wasn't already talked about by the prophets. The most obvious place to see what Paul is talking about is back in the book of Daniel. So turn to Daniel chapter 7. You can keep your finger or a marker there in 2 Thessalonians. We will be back. But turn to Daniel chapter 7. And boy, I am just tempted to read this whole thing. Okay, Genesis 1.1. We'll start. Start at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, 
Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed, and he wrote the dream down, and he related the following summary. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and he had wings of an eagle. I kept looking until his wings were plucked, and it was lifted up off the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a human mind also was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little horn, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Okay, so very, very briefly, what Daniel is describing here is the kingdoms after Babylon that are ever going to rule in the Middle East and have power over Jerusalem in particular. And the first was like a lion with wings, and it became a man. We find out that's Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. It was a beast after him, a second one with a bear who's lifted up on one side. What a perfect description of the Medo-Persian Empire as Cyrus the Mede became more powerful as Cyrus the Persian became more powerful than Darius the Mede. And there were three great wars that the Medo-Persians engaged in in their conquering of the Middle East. And so he is described as having three ribs in his teeth, and he devoured much meat. And then as Daniel was looking, there was a leopard with wings. Leopards really fast. Leopards with wings Stupidly fast. <laughs> That's Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. Historians to this very day marvel at what happened in the Middle East and how a man that young could conquer that completely and that swiftly. Well, he's described as a leopard with wings. And then the Roman Empire, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong. But then as Paul finishes describing that, there is this amalgam, this kingdom of ten kings, ten horns, a ten-nation confederacy. And while he's looking at that, there is another horn, a little horn, a leader. Three of the horns he's going to pluck up, three of them he's going to conquer and then the rest are just going to give him the authority, give him the power. He is going to rule over this ten-nation confederacy. Okay, so has the Babylonian Empire happened in time and history on the stage of planet Earth? Has that happened? Yes. Yep. 
How about uh, the Medo-Persian Empire? Did that happen? That's one of the ways that we can compare Daniel's prophecy to actual history, is that we can go look at what the Persian Empire actually did, and it perfectly corresponds with what Daniel said. Pretty amazing proof, again, that it's the word of God. Uh, Alexander the Great. Anybody here ever heard of him? Yep. Alexander the Great and his cousin, Dave the Adequate. Alexander the Great, we all know about him. Rome, did they rule at any point in the Middle East? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Then there's this ten-nation confederacy with this one ruler who's going to take three of them, pluck up three of them, and he's going to rule there in the Middle East. He has to rule over the same area and the same people groups that all these previous kingdoms ruled over. And that has not happened in history. We cannot point at that yet. And as we're going to see in a moment, one of the ways that we know that hasn't happened yet is that during the time of those ten kings, that's when Christ comes back. Has anybody seen Christ come back yet? Well, that's why I haven't seen the ten horns yet. That's still coming. Verse 9, and I kept looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days, who would that be? God himself. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. And its wheels were a burning fire. It's very similar to what Ezekiel saw. God riding on a throne that's a chariot with wheels full of eyes and wheels within wheels, angels attending him. And there was a river of fire flowing and coming out from before him, and thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads, uncountable masses of people, times uncountable masses of people were standing before him, and the court was set, and the books were opened. This is judgment. When does that happen? After the ten-toed kingdom. After the ten-horn kingdom. After these ten nations and this little horn rises up. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which that little horn was speaking. And I kept looking until that beast was slain. And its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts... Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time because God is a God of set times. And historically, they each had a period of time wherein they were able to rule the Middle East and rule over God's people, Israel. And that was designed by God, appointed by God. They began when he said, they ended when he said, even Daniel knows that sovereign God that we talk about. Verse 13, and I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. I like the description of Christ on the clouds. At the beginning of the book of Acts, for instance, when Jesus has spent 
the previous 50 days talking to his disciples about the kingdom to come. He's then taken up off the planet, and it says that he is enveloped, engulfed by the clouds as he rises into the sky. And then as his apostles are standing there gazing into the sky as he's going, an angel shows up. And says, ye men of Galilee, why are you gazing into the sky? This same Jesus will return exactly like you saw him leave. That means he's coming back in clouds of glory. Which is why then Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians that when he returns on the clouds, we are gathered together to him and we meet the Lord in the air. We meet him in the clouds and so will we ever be with the Lord. I like that consistent description of the Son of Man and his clouds of glory. One like the Son of Man was coming and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him and to him was given Utter dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That is in contrast to all the kingdoms of the earth, which had their particular appointed time, and then they were destroyed. Eventually, they all became dust. There's a long list of kingdoms and people groups that have ever occupied some part of planet earth, and they're all gone. But Christ's kingdom is going to endure forever And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And you will notice when that kingdom is announced. It's after all of these earthly, physical kingdoms, which is why I conclude, as the Bible does, that his kingdom is going to be an earthly, literal kingdom. It is much more than just a spiritualized kingdom. It is a physical, on-earth kingdom, the very same way as Babylon or Medo-Persia or Greece or Rome or the ten-toed kingdom. He is going to rule on planet earth because it is all the nations of the earth, the peoples, all the nations, every man of every language are all going to serve him because his absolute dominion, his rulership is over absolutely everybody and it's an everlasting dominion. Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by me And I began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and he made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and will possess the kingdom forever for all the ages to come. Look at verse 17 and 18. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. Did that happen? Yes, that absolutely happened. So then that means verse 18 also has to happen, which is the holy ones who belong to God 
are going to receive also an earthly kingdom and possess that kingdom forever, for all the ages to come. And then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And I wanted to know the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and that other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn that had eyes and a mouth uttering great blasphemies and boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. And I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints, the holy ones of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom, and thus he said, that fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue three of those kings." And he will speak out against the Most High, and he will wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, because he's the lawless one. And they will be given into his hand for a time, and times, and half a time. That's one and two and a half, that's three and a half. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away and annihilated and destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him and at this point, the revelation ended, and as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. So Daniel has just described an end-time scenario that seems to be exactly what Paul told the Thessalonians. Don't you remember when I was with you? I told you these things. Where was Paul getting it? He wasn't making it up. He was just saying what the prophets have already said, including the fact that there's going to be this time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again on the planet, that it is the time that Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's trouble. In case you're confused by Daniel here and his several references to the saints so that you don't start thinking, well, the saints, that's the church, that's us. That means that we're going to encounter this lawless one. The saints in Daniel's reckoning is Israel, the same way that Isaiah says that God says that Jacob is my chosen, my elect. They are the holy ones of God. That's who Daniel is referencing here because it is the time of Jacob's trouble. Therefore, that little horn is going to be able to persecute Israel, exactly like Babylon persecuted Israel, exactly like Medo-Persia persecuted Israel, exactly like Greece persecuted 
Israel, the same way as Rome persecuted Israel. The ten-toed kingdom and that final world ruler is going to persecute Israel. It's a consistent story. And when is that going to happen? After the restraining force is removed. Who's the restraining force? Those people who meet the Lord in the air at his parousia, the ones who are part of that departure. Do you see how it all fits together? Back to 2 Thessalonians. Now, I also promised you that I was going to demonstrate to you an absolutely sovereign God straight from the text, straight from what Paul says here. This is GCA. We, we've been talking for 22 and a half years about a sovereign God who chooses and elects and determines things. You know, we talk about a God who's actually, what's that word? God! You know, the one who actually can do whatever he wants. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. The God who doesn't ask other people for counsel or advice. The God who does everything in the heavens, in the earth, in all the deeps, in all the seas, he does everything that he wants to do. All his good pleasure, all his counsel, and he is the one who determines who is saved and who is lost. Paul is now going to say that. And when he gets done with this description, I hope that you are really, really, really grateful that the God of heaven, the maker of everything, chose you because he's perfectly willing to judge and judge badly and eternally look at what Paul says let's start reading at verse 8 that lawless one who we just read about from the book of Daniel we have a greater understanding that he is driven by Satan himself that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Daniel said the exact same thing, that he's going to be destroyed by the Ancient of Days. That is, in describing the lawless one, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. And because he has the activity of Satan coursing through him, he's going to demonstrate dunamis, power, He's going to show signs. He's going to do wonders, but Paul calls them false wonders. And you can see why people would flock to somebody like that. For heaven's sake, Christian, I'm picking on you now. Could you fill a stadium to get people to come hear you? No. Can Benny Hinn? Yes. Why? Because he does false wonders. And people flock to that. But they will not flock to a stadium to see somebody preach a sovereign God and tell them how sinful and bad and depraved they are. They're not showing up for that. But they will flock to see somebody do signs and miracles and false wonders. Well, this one, because he is satanic in his religion and inspiration, he is actually going to do powerful miracle things. And false wonders. You can see why the whole world is going to flock to him. And with all the deception of wickedness, he is going to deceive people. He is going to lie to people and they will perish. And they are described by Paul as those 
who are perishing because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So the receiving of the love of the truth is the methodology that results in being saved. And they're not going to be saved if they don't receive the love of the truth. And I think Micah and I demonstrated last week what the receiving thing is all about. You can only receive from God what God gives you. And he doesn't give to everybody the same way as you're going to see in a moment. Because look at what God does to these people who he is determined are perishing. Remember that this is the same Paul who in the book of Romans writes about God being long-suffering toward, this is his exact language, the vessels of wrath who are made for destruction. Are you comfortable with a God like that? Are you comfortable with a God who can make people knowing full well that judgment is their lot? Is that okay with you? Because that's the God of the Bible, not the imaginary God, not the God that people carry around in their fantasies. The real God, the maker of heaven and earth, does everything according to his own will and good pleasure. Everything, including this chilling statement. Those who perish did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, but they're going to follow after the Antichrist. They're going to flock to the little horn. They're going to believe the deception of Satan. And why? Look at verse 11. For this reason. What's the reason? The reason is that they're perishing, that they do not receive the love of the truth, and they are not being saved. And it is for that reason that God sends upon them a strong delusion so that they might believe the lie and be condemned. Collectively, you're probably all thinking at this moment, look, I got up, I got dressed, and I came to church, okay? And you're bumming me out right now. <laughs> I want to hear about that happy God. I want to happy, clappy God. I, I want to hear about the God who loves me and wants me to have everything and be healthy all the time. But the real God, the God of the Bible, the sovereign God, the almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who can do anything he wants with anyone he wants, sends a strong delusion upon the people he is designed to perish and he does not give them the love of the truth, so they will not be saved. And it's for that very reason that instead of giving them the truth and the love of the truth, he gives them this deluding influence so that they might believe what is false, what is a lie, in order that they all may be condemned, judged, crino, who did not believe the truth. Why did they not believe the truth? Because they didn't receive the love of the truth so that they would not be saved. And then God deludes them on top of that so that they will believe the lies of this world and the lies of the final kingdom and ruler. And for that reason, they did not believe the truth, but they took pleasure in wickedness. 
because they're following after the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the man of unrighteousness. So naturally they are defined as people who take pleasure in wickedness. Now, am I going to leave you there? No. No, you know me better than that. Who are you talking to? (laughs) No, I'm not going to leave you there. Because look at the next verse. This God who is willing to send a strong delusion on people so that they will not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, but rather so that they will believe this lie and be judged who did not believe the truth. Those who took pleasure in Wickedness, God did all of that. Sovereign God did all of that. But but we should always give thanks to God for you. Here comes the big contrast. Because the same sovereign God who's fully willing and capable of making vessels of wrath who are fitted for destruction, that same God wrote names down in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. That same God sent his son to die for those particular people. That same God sealed those people with the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, we are really, really grateful for you. Why? Because you're beloved by the Lord. Oh, you're not going to be deluded. You're not going to have this strong delusion on you. God's not going to turn from you. God wrote your name down because he always loved you. God who does not change. If he loves you now, it's because he always loved you. He loved you before he made you. He knew what he was doing. He knew that he was going to bring you into his presence eternally. That's how much he loved you. Want to know how much he loved you? He murdered his son for you. Nailed him to a cross. Drove him to agony that made his sweat be like great drops of blood as he agonized over what he was going to go through for you. That's how much he loved you. He poured out his wrath on his son so that Paul could say, and you're not appointed to wrath because Christ fully, sufficiently, completely paid the price for you. Oh, thank God that I should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has elected you, because God has chosen you. When? Was it at the moment that you chose him? Was it at the moment that you had a change of mind where you repented? No, He chose you from the beginning for salvation. That's what the Bible says, and that's all that the Bible says. That everybody who is saved is saved as a result of God's foreordination, predestination, determination, and election. It's the only way that people get saved because that same God is willing to delude people and willing to judge people. And that God saved you. Do you understand anything I'm saying? Do you get it? That's the God who saved you. So I got to ask you, how saved are you? 
You're way saved. Completely, utterly saved if that's the God that saved you. Because it is the power of God that chose you, that saved you, that is preserving you, that is going to take you all the way to your appointed destiny in heaven with him. You're going to live in splendor and glory and eternity with him where there's no more sickness and no more death, where God wipes away every tear. That is what he has appointed for you. And he did that because he loves you. Amen. That's astounding. I love the Bible. I love the Word of God. If you just read it, it says these astoundingly wonderful things. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning. What's God's beginning? When God says beginning, what's God's beginning? The beginning of Genesis says in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Yeah, but the creation of the heaven and earth wasn't the beginning because God was already there to do the creating. What's God's beginning? Whatever his beginning is, that's when he chose you. (laughs) Way back then, he chose you. Because God has chosen you from the beginning for what purpose? For salvation. Through sanctification by the Spirit, making you separate, making you holy, making you righteous because of the Holy Spirit of God working through you and because of the finished work of Jesus Christ through sanctification by the Spirit and through faith in the truth. Where are you going to find the truth? Right here in this word. Amen. you got to pay attention to what this word says. And in this word, you discover an absolutely sovereign God who has loved you from the beginning, chosen you from the beginning, redeemed you through the finished work of his son, sealed you by his Holy Spirit. And it was for this reason that he called you through the gospel so that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. You've never heard better news in your whole stupid life than what you just heard. Our God is mighty. Our God is sovereign. Our God determined what he was going to do from the very beginning. And part of what he determined in his magnificence was that he was going to save you. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Just astounding. That's what the Bible says. That's what's coming for us in our future. Christ himself, the very one who saved us, is going to appear in the clouds of heaven with a trumpet call and the voice of an archangel. We're going to rise to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we ever be with the Lord. Okay, but that sounds really fantastical, Jim. How do I know it's true? Because it's in the exact same letter, in the exact same book, as the rest of everything we just agreed is true. Is Babylon true? Yeah. Greece? Yeah. Alexander the Great? Yeah. Dave the Adequate? No. (laughs) Is everything else that we've been reading Historically and geographically and 
prophetically. Is that all true? Yes, that's all true. That means that God has this perfect batting average going where everything he says actually comes to fruition in time and history here on planet Earth. And that means he's coming to get you. And he's going to take you to himself. When he left here, he said, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may also be. He's coming to get you. Thank God. What a God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. you listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.